Testing one, two. Okay. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. God, we just come to you this morning, Lord. We just um, just pause, and uh, Father, we just come to this place in our hearts of just praise and worship unto you. Father, we just love you so much. Lord, as we uh, today um, come in the fellowship of yours and your word, Father, we find no greater privilege. Father, we thank you for um, your word and the impact that it has on our literal lives. Father, from it uh, we come to know you more and more. So I just do pray today that as we continue in our study of Second Peter, Lord, we thank you for um, this writing. Uh, we thank you for your Spirit's work in Peter and to be able to share these words with us. And Lord, that we, even today, Father, you would give us uh, a better understanding to the character and the conduct of those that would oppose you. And Father, that we would have hearts that are discerning. And so we just do pray that your Spirit will lead and will guide us. And that today, as always, that we will give honor and praise to you in the reading and the studying of your Word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past week, come to this somewhat sad, but yet true position at times where asking just a a question of myself is that um, do I ever take for granted the Word of God? And this rich and this really um, wonderful privilege that we have to read it, to study it, proclaim it, and to know God through it. And do I take it for granted? Do I take it serious? And sometimes when I don't think um, hard and serious about that, I take it for granted. It's secondary. um, This week with a group of guys, we were talking um, in study about it, and your week is like my week. It's busy, right? Morning. It's like everything is measured, timing. And yet, where is this time with the Word? And so do we take it serious? And so... As I was reflecting on just the passing of time, um, how God has um, mercifully and just the abundance of His grace being recipients of this over and over again, over many, many years for me, that what, how would I view my love of God, my intimacy with God, and am I, am I excited about it? Or do I find myself being somewhat just sort of cooled about it, dimmed as opposed to bright, in excitement, on fire? I think you can recall at certain points in your life where the Word of God is it's just a blazing fire of just excitement. It just lights you up. It, it's, it's hot. The times, other times, it's we can come under the study of the word, and it's just, yeah, we know I've I've studied that book, uh, we I've read that passage, I've gone through it, and it needs to be deep. It, it needs to be um, at a much deeper level. And why I'm considering that is because I'm trying to to get my head and my heart wrapped around more and more, uh, Peter. What the Holy Spirit was doing in Peter's life, that he would take and write this whole letter is as this warning, and so I can only believe that he was serious about the Word of God. In fact, he was so serious that it he had he was compelled and driven to share that those concerns. Where are you from a depth standpoint, a passion standpoint? Um, what is your intensity as you would view it with the Word of God? And so as we consider Second Peter, and if you open your Bibles back to Second Peter chapter 2, or we're going to pick up, I want you to think about that because I'm going to, again, as an opener today, which we're going to digress shortly to help us to understand 
part of this depth of love and passion that may have been what's driving Peter. We have been in a long study of Second Peter. In the last time that I shared with you, where were we in our, our study of Second Peter with this overarching theme of the true and false prophecy. The chapters, one, understanding your faith, the scriptures as the foundational passages in chapter one, with themes of development of faith, holiness, true knowledge, and how Christ is cultivated in our own lives and that character revealed. To chapter two, where we've been for several weeks now with the understanding of our adversary, Satan, and those false teachers to understand them. It is about heresy as a theme, false knowledge, and and the condemnation, as we've seen even again today, of another, one more reminder of their destiny of black darkness. So today, I'll be covering their impact, the false teachers. It's devastating. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 22, to close out this. And as we meet again after Easter, right? Mark, I think, we're going to pick up with the closure of chapter 3, which brings us into to focus is this future promise. The hope is the key theme, the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, and confidence in His return. So as we go through this, today we'll close out this section of that of understanding our adversary. So what is our objective? Our objective today is that we, as believers, God's people, in the church, would heed Peter's clear warning to stay away from false teachers and to be discerning of their prophecies. What are they teaching? What are their words? And their perversion, what is their character? And to recognize aspects of their character, which we have been studying with Nathan covered in the preceding weeks. The theme is today, they cannot be tolerated. It's a zero tolerance. They promise what they cannot deliver, and their end, again, as a reminder, is black darkness. So, opening up to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 to 23. If someone could be so kind either to read from your, your Bible, or if you want, you can read from the PowerPoint here. Let's read the passage together. The whole thing. We're going through the whole thing. All right. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. But they mouth empty, boastful words and appear by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. They have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Okay, we're going to look at, at really four uh, specific parts of this passage. First one is in chapter verses 17. We'll isolate this on your outline there, which will be again drilling into these false teachers that promise what they cannot deliver, and again this a further reminder of their destiny, and that is black darkness. It is hell. And in verses 18 and 19, we're going to look at again this call for the, for us as believers and for his readers and listeners that we can have. No tolerance. It cannot be tolerated at all. And what are some of the characteristics of their words themselves and their current state as being slaves of corruption or slaves of sin? And then finally in verses 20, 21, and 22 is the deception that we see in these false teachers and then Peter's use of this very unique Proverbs at the end that essentially describes these false teachers. So as we consider Second Peter, we need to be mindful of the attitude of tolerance and basic indifference. Stopping at that point. So we, we see the call for us to be intolerant, right? That's a zero tolerance itself. And so when we say, as we look at this attitude that may be growing and always has been, as what we'll see, of this attitude of tolerance or indifference 
as it relates to the Word, as well as even the teaching of these false teachers as far as it being uh, okay. The attitude of indifference toward the purity of the Word of God, failure to live in subjection to the Word, reveals, in this case, the lack of depth and a passionate love. You see, we asked about that opening parts of that as far as where are you, I believe that if the deeper the love that we have for God and the deeper the love that we have for His Word, there is a result, there is a cause and effect that comes in into here that we want to see very clearly. I believe that a great place to go to understand this is to just take a, a few minutes and just look at Psalm 119. What do you know about Psalm 119 while you're turning there? It's a long one, right? How many verses? Anyone? Trivia? 158. Keep up, 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 up. 72. I don't know. I think like 176, right? That's good. Check me. Check it out, right? It's 176. All right. So, all right. We're going to read 176 verses. No, no, we're not going to do that. Okay, we don't want to read all 176, but open up there for a second because we want to do a little skimming through this, okay? And I want you to pick out some key things from this particular psalm. And we know it's the longest, so again, we're not going to read it. But what do you know about the psalm? It's about the Word, the laws, Scripture, the many, many precepts. All in the same, right? Yeah. Right? There's different words for the Word of God that are represented there. All of those things. So, the first thing you can conclude in there is that don't get hung up on law, precept, scripture. It's all about the word, okay? So, it is a awesome, awesome chapter all about the word of God. The entire thing is about the importance of the word of God. But what I want us to capture in here is the psalmist's view to the word of God, okay? How it just goes like this. And, but yet we see some very, very clear consonants, and I'm just going to point out three of those to start with. To start off with my first question to you about is this love of God. What is the deep love that you have for God and the deep love you have for the Word? Let's just go open up the Psalm 19 if you're there, and just go with me here. Starting first of all with the Word of God is more precious than anything. If you could identify the most precious thing that you have in material possessions, what would it be? Just put it in your head. It's that a a material material thing. Oh, my Bible. Okay. Don would say it's his new John Deere tractor that he just got, right? (laughs) A close second. Now, okay. Maybe the chainsaw. Okay. All right, the new chainsaw that you got, okay? Whatever it is, if you just just go with me on this thing, look at you know again 127 in here, and we're going to skip all around in just a few of these verses here. Therefore, I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Whatever that possession is, whatever it possibly is, it's of no. It's not even significant compared to the Word of God. Okay, I liked, I liked the answer. It's it's the most precious thing that we have. But many times we don't go there immediately when we answer that. We go to our relationship. We go to other things. But yet it is this Word. And I just want you to capture this. And there are places. And if you just go back to the beginning and just, I'll read some of these. So you can go with me on it. Starting like in verse 48. My hands also I will lift up your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 127. It is more precious I love, I love your commandments. It's more precious than gold, silver, fine gold. Verse 159. And I'm just picking some out. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. 167. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them considerably. 
if you were writing this psalm and you kept repeating that, what do you, what's, what are you saying? It's like, it's like when you're talking to somebody, you just keep saying, I love you. I, I, I really love you. That is what I, my takeaway to this, is that there clearly was this deep love that this psalmist had for the Word. And we just see that over and over. That Word in itself, it through that, I believe, is, is that that expression of that is because he's coming to know more and more of the depths of God. And that can only be the reflection of the heart. You know, what's not, an, you, you can't, it can't escape you is how, how many places where he says that, starting in verse 2, he says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with what? A whole heart. Goes through and you find out all the places. He never says a half heart. It's whole heart. Several, several places. Whole heart. Your word I have hidden in my heart. Verse 11. Verse 34, Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 58, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Verse 69, The proud I have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts with my whole heart. It just This is this message that we see clearly. And so with that, is that I see this intensity. There is this intense longing that we see from the psalmist that is to obey. 119 verse 11, Your word I've hidden in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. 35. This is another example. Make me walk in your, in your path of your commandments. 105. Another one. Your, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So, with this, is that we see this intense longing to desire the Word of God. And finally, is I want you to see, is that we have this love, this deep love of God, of greatest value, the Word of God being so precious, this intense longing to obey it, to follow those commandments, to recognize that the Word is literally the path. It is what keeps us going forward. And then finally, I want you to recognize in the psalm, is that he also denounces any rejection of the Word itself. Take a look at verse 118. 118 of that psalm. Hold me up and I shall be safe and I shall observe your statutes. You reject all those who stray from your, your statutes for their deceit is falsehood. 136. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. What is that picture you have? It's the psalmist. There is grief in his heart that there are those that have strayed from the word. They've rejected the word itself. It's funny because we're talking the whole the whole word, word tolerance. Just you know, you hear it so much today. It's just I mean, I agree with you hundred percent. It's just it's a hard word to exactly where Satan's attacking. You know, and sort of bad word. The the answer to my own my conclusion to my self-examination is is that if I have taken the word for granted or I find myself just somewhat not real excited or cooled, I'll call it, you know, cooled or dimmed to the word, I know how to I know how to get that back is what then it was I can if you just study Psalm Psalm one nineteen, you you kinda catch the energy. You see that. You find you find it there. It's always there in the word. You're right, Connie, and I think that's what some of this warning is. So, how I'm going to make the connection to this psalm is is that now you see why Peter is pretty cranked up. See, he reflects the very same qualities that that psalmist expounded within that writing, that chapter. Is that there was, the word itself was more precious. And I'm going to tell you is that when you look closely, at literally he will like almost I quote Jesus exactly when he talks about the remember the last will be worse type thing and that's like an exact quote is that he is recalling the words of Jesus. So in his walking with Jesus, he comes to realize that the words of Christ, the words of Jesus, and the very fact is is that remember back. We just talked about this a few weeks ago, where he, in the chapter 1, where he is saying, is that, look, 
remember they were authenticating the fact that he was an apostle. These prophets had the word of God. And he ended in chapter 1 by saying, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by what? The will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What what is Peter is is the perspective, and what he's saying in there is that, look, in chapter 2 I'm going to tell you about these false teachers. They're not moved by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God works in these men that he was focusing on to accredit that. And so we see this as we, as we transition this in uh, into some of these words. And I go back to here, the tolerance and basic indifference is I believe that, that it, it merits a good discussion about it because it does get it stirred up and it exposes some things. Let's go on. So in Second Peter, chapter 2, Peter's writing about this danger. The dangers of false teachers and the corruption they will work in the church. So, pause at this point, and, um, and today's when you ever see a green, that's, that's you. That means green means go. Okay? For you. So, why? Why is he giving extensive consideration to this, of this warning? So, probably he's experienced it a lot. Probably, like, been around, like, seeing this the first hand, and try to, or, probably seen it even tear down some churches or something like that, or I would say from experience, so passionate about it. Okay. Others. So people can hear what's coming. I know if I have a warning, I would prepare myself to avoid it or maybe not avoid it, but know what to do. Touch the hot stuff. Just somebody telling you. Don't tell. Telling people. Felt the pain. I felt it. I felt it. Here, can you feel it here? Don't go that way. Don't listen. Part two, and you've been, you've been entrusted with this from Christ Himself, from the feet of Jesus. And so. like the lump of dough. You know, if you'll tolerate even ignore a little bit of it, it can permeate. I mean, you know, like, oh, he's not going to, that won't cause that much harm. But it grows, you know, and it, it can take over. Just sort of like the Old Testament passages where God says, wipe them out, <laughs> you know. He just no tolerance for it, for that. God wants that. I think Peter, like the psalmist, was 100% immersed <laughs> in the Word of God. In that immersion, you are intolerant of anything that would deviate from the Word that you know is true. Amen. So, he is advocating that everyone have that same immersion. Be intolerant of anything that would deviate the Word of God. I think you're, that's a main point, and I, I want to take, because you're all right on this. You're, you're hitting it at the, all, all the same places of this. I'll, I'll give you a practical, very flush example, okay? Is that, you know, find what is that that you dearly love. So let's just say that it was one of my children, that I love my child so much, okay? If there was any attempt to harm that child, what would Dave do? Dave would get physical. I'm just gonna. That's my natural response. You defend it, right? That using that, that is exactly where the heart, where that is passionately, deeply in love of God and His Word is gonna. Wait a second. They're gonna protect it. They're gonna defend it. So, gotta know it. That that's that's really the what's behind this. I go back. And I, I just keep on going back to this verse because it, it really, and that's verse 1 of chapter 2. And this is, this tolerance and intolerance, this is the hard part. And that is, is that the, but there were also false prophets among the people. That meant that they were there at the time. They're here today. They were among the people. They are in the church. That's the hard part. You sent a little video clip to Mark and I, right? Yeah. All right. Startling, scary, okay? Here you even have a moody grad, right? And all of a sudden there is this flip. So, what is my conclusion? And not, you know, I would take the time to play. Conclusion? Non believer. That yet went through seminary was among them, right? That's the warning. And so, when Peter, there's an extensive amount because they go back to verse 1, he is saying, it's that, it's, 
It's not just like they're out there. See them out there? We're protected by these walls. No, they are here. That's where Satan is working it right now. Okay? So, great. I think you understand that, that sense of urgency, but the passion that we can capture where Peter is at. Yeah, and it does. It, it should aggravate you. Like, it, you know, obviously your response shouldn't be, uh, you know, like out of first initial reaction, you're just like frustrated. It's just like, well, because what's, like, you just know the devastation that will have on other people, you know, with like burning God's word and, and everything like that and kind of causing disbelief or all this kind of, it's just a big mess that it's causing. It's just like, it should frustrate me because it's like, I don't know. So using my example, okay, and, and playing off what you just said, what I'm going to, my takeaway to teach myself is that, okay, well, don't, God's in control of this, yeah. okay? Yeah. God's totally in control, and He's going to send me another reminder here again and say, look, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to send them to black darkness, okay? That's not a ride at, uh, up at the Dells either, okay? <laughs> that is someplace that you don't want to go, okay? So, these false teachers in verse 1 that we saw earlier, it's said in again, as I talked about this, is that even as they will be as false... Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies who promote ungodliness in doctrine and lifestyle? And the way that he starts in today's passage in verse 17, he starts off and he describes them metaphorically. He says that there are springs without water and mists driven by a storm in verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. Jude 12 is a, a similar in verse I read Jude 12 for you this is, these are spots he's, this is how he's talking about the apostates their depravity he says these are spots in your love uh, in your love feast while they feast with you without fear serving only themselves they are clouds without water carried about by the winds late autumn trees without fruit twice dead pulled up by the roots so what do, you, what do they mean in the context of this passage? What do you think they mean by that? What did Peter, what is he referring to? That they are like wells, or they're like springs without water and mists driven by the storm. What are your thoughts? When I think of a cloud, like, without rain, like, me, like, a cloud is kind of annoying, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, like, kind of raining, you know what I mean? It's just blocking the sun, it's like, really <coughs> but if it rains and it produces water, it's, it's doing something good, it's like, you know, whatever, you know, like, that's what it's, it's nurturing, it's refreshing, it's, it's all that stuff. But, like, without it, it's just kind of a nuisance. It's kind it's of just pretty, though. Sometimes. <laughs> you, remember, you remember last summer late? Remember we had that long drought period, pretty dry? You know, it's the homeowners in the room are going, yeah, I mean, a little water would be nice for the garden, right? Or just for the green grass. And what you see, you know, you see some black clouds kind of passing through, and you get pretty excited, right? But then they just, like, keep going. Nothing happens. It's like clouds without water. It's frustrating. So they mean the same thing in these springs without water is that take it in the context of this passage. Describe for me what Palestine may have been like. What would, what would they have known? What was the, the topography like there? Desert? Yeah, it was dry. It was parched. And they had wells of water, right? You remember the John 4.17 passage where the woman... Right? Jesus comes to the well and he says, Look, she's coming to get water, and he says, Look, I'm what? I'm the living water. You want don't you take some of this water, you'll never thirst again. That's what those passages, and we won't go through those, but in contrast to that, and so when he refers to springs without water, then is that basically is that there there's nothing there. They're dried up. So these teachers, these false teachers, they promise something that they actually cannot deliver. In other words, when I go up to the well, I'm expecting water to be there, and it's not there. That's no different than those false teachers. Just to add to that too, Dave, I think that um, when you talk about springs without water, springs are created having water, right? So, um, indictment on purposes, and yet very very created creation of who they are has been... Yeah, when you... Just looking at this statement from the standpoint is is that there is that promise of water, and that's why it it's important to kind of look at the biblical contrast to that. I mean, seriously, when you look at what Jesus specifically used, um, it's a it's a fascinating little side. You know, if you're looking for another little side study, in that just look at 
in the Old Testament, what they talked about was what Jerusalem and this flowing in Revelation, right? In Ezekiel, it was talking about this coming of this flowing water from living water from Jerusalem. So it is not by coincidence that Jesus would say, I am the living water. I provide that. And you will never thirst again. It's a fascinating contrast to saying is that He is the Messiah. He is God. And those that promise water, and in this case they even promise living water from this, from, in their context, from the standpoint, it's like, you got a problem? I got a solution for you. And yet, it is nothing. It is misdriven by a storm, by the wind. It's nothing. It looks like it's going to rain. And they, it shows the promise of rain, but there is nothing there. You can see where Peter is, how he's working this. And I believe that he, he, heard the, he, he got the words of Jesus. He understood what Jesus was referring to, that he is the living water. Anything other than that is nothing. It is empty. And the words themselves of that would come of that promise. The promise itself is words. Right? It's something that they're going to promise. And so what we're going to dig into is even the emptiness of those words. So, here we go. Here's green. Why are false teachers then so popular? Marlene, tell me a little bit more. What do you mean by rosy picture? Well, I promise you uh, nice things, a financial gain or a good marriage or lots of pots of gold. Okay, anyone in the room? Does anyone in the room not want that? What Marlene just said. <laughs> Honestly, does anyone not really... In, in the, okay, we're going like, no, oh, that's not so bad. The flesh, all, all of our flesh is going like, yeah, I want some of that too. But if it damns my soul, I wouldn't. That's right. You see, I, I'm just asking like a rhetorical question there, but you understand the flesh is drawn to that rosy picture, right? I mean, there isn't a person in the room that just says, you know what, we want to be healthy. That that I'll just take something, I won't, I'll, you know, the money part is an easy, we, we set that aside going like, you know, come on. We all want to be healthy. No one wants to be ill. So that that messaging itself, it, it's inviting in the flesh. I don't think that's me. Okay, Betty, we have a fine system. Oh, it's not mine. Okay, that when the, when the phone rings, you know, you just put a little money in the kitty for uh, treats next week. Okay. Okay. Oh, so so Deb's bringing treats next week then. Okay. They, just, they just reminded me. Oh, I need to turn mine down. <laughs> take a take a second, and while take a look, take a second look at these two passages in Ephesians and Second Timothy for a second, if we could. Why are they false teachers are so popular? Because first of all, and I think Marlene, you hit on a key thing there, um, is that they they talk of the rosy picture. They talk whatever the the thing is. In fact, I'm going to say basically that whatever is uh, in... Talk about what people want to hear. Like they give the people what they want to hear. And they do it for them, like pleasing people instead of pleasing God. So it's like, that's who's their state. Someone can read uh, Ephesians 4. Go there. And um, uh, you have to give us a little background. So maybe you could read uh, 11 through 14 for extra credit there. And he gave some as apostles, tripping of the saints to the, to the building up of the body of Christ, all attained hope, longer to be children, tossed here and mocked by the career of men, backing us in the Okay, to see that how that's being described in there, there's these teachers are popular because first of all we see in that that they're moved by doctrinally by the wind. And so that wind you know, let's just say over time that wind it changes the the topic. Whatever is is there, it happens to be the issues become the popular trend. We'll call it, or the in item, and so with that is that that draws, and in there is that we see is this, that there is deceit. 
the deceptiveness within that messaging. And again, it is the doctrine of man. It goes back to that Second Peter passage. There's no, there's nothing good. That, there's no doctrine of man that works. Dave, yesterday, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door, and I don't know if they were covering the rest of Bartlett, but um, you know, after engaging him for a little bit, he said something to the effect, well, it sounds like you're pretty grounded in the Word, but there are so many people out here that I've got to reach uh, mm. to explain to them that we can return to Adam and Eve and have basically heaven on earth, and it's a message that people supposedly want to hear. So that was his desire, was to reach as many as he could so that we would return to the nirvana, supposedly, of Adam and Eve. Heaven on earth is what their goal is. So he, he struck out coming to your house. Okay? Yeah, but, but keep this in mind, because I think you, what you gave us is an example, because Peter is going to refer to this group that have actually or barely escaped from those who live in error. So, like a, a question is, who is he referring to? Okay, there's potentially two different groups that would fill into there, would get there, but I think what he's saying is that, oh, it doesn't live here, so I'm going to go somewhere else. But, Connie. And just this week, I, a woman from outside of our community here uh, called about a women's event, and she was a uh, Really, she focused more on the health and wellness. Um, it was just a very interesting conversation, you know. I mean, you know, she just has some things definitely where, in this, I said, false teachers promise but are unable to deliver. No one can promise you that you're to be healthy and no problems here on this earth, you know. That's not really quite what God's Word has to say. But she stood very strong and firm on it. She thought that maybe that's what we were doing here. I'm like, how would she have gotten that? From but turned me a bit. But anyway, it was just a, she could take God's word and twist it just, just fine tune it a little bit to look what He says. I'm like, oh, I <laughs> know, but look what He says. <laughs> anyway, just I interesting. Know. Just a twist, and it took it in a whole wrong direction. So. But yeah. promise right? always draws. Mm-hmm. Just the word. Stop, stopping at that point, promise draws. Right. And who of us don't want that to be promised? That you know, I mean, in, in the long run, I mean, you know, you do want to be good and okay and reality. We realize that. Just an interesting conversation. Vic, you wanted to share? Yeah, along that same line of the false teachers, and false teachers, and how they distort things. As I was reading this article by religious leaders issue of today, went through all the scriptures, and there was nothing wrong with any of the scriptures. And it went on for several pages of just using scriptures to kind of set you up. Mm-hmm. But then they got to their their foundation based on history, and they took history out of context, wrong on the history that distorted the whole word that they had presented. And so it's so tricky the way it can be done sometimes. And when I read the history and I went, and I went back and I, I did some research on the history, and wait a minute, the foundation was all wrong. They based scripture on some history. See why people would be led down this wrong road. It was promise. Um, but they, they couldn't deliver Christ in the situation. False. You know, what is the message of Second Timothy? You know, the whole thing is what perilous times are coming. And verse five he gets into, you know, as far as to say is that having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away exclamation point is what Paul's saying. So they're here. They were there then, they were among them, they're here today and that form of, of godliness. There's no inner stability. It is just, it's whatever. It's whatever the wind moves it, that's where it's going. So he reminds us again in verse 17 at the conclusion of that, that he says, For when they, uh, these are wells without water, cl- clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Forever. Black darkness. It is reserved for them. 
I like this word of this this reserved for them because it, what it does is it, it's it's like in the, the present tense it's something that was done before you know like when you make a reservation for something you do it before and there it is and then when you is present there and in this situation there is this reservation and this is where you have to at least recognize that God's destiny plan for these false teachers is hell. And Jesus spoke of the blackness of hell in several passages in here. Um, I, I just want to, again, another little side study, but it's fascinating. If you just look at Matthew uh, chapter 8, just for a second, I won't get on this too long. Matthew chapter 8. Okay, this was, this was the section in Matthew 8 about the centurion servant that was healed. Picks up in verse 7, let's say. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers un- under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Surely I say to you, I have, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So what he's exposing in here is that you have, Israel has this all wrong from the standpoint of the kingdom. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is this, again, this image we have here of this, again, Sadly, Israel in this unbelief. Destiny is hell. Go over to, to chapter 22 real quick. 22, verse 13. This is, uh, this is the parable of the marriage feast. And I, I have to kind of just give you a little bit. Starting in verse 8, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he said he was speechless. And then the king said to, this, to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, you're in, uh, your context of that, your immediate response was you feel sorry for the, the guy, right? Because he wasn't dressed up for the wedding. But everybody else was. So they went out to the streets and everybody, they brought them in. In other words, the king get, they came dressed. It is this picture of these wedding garments in Isaiah that are provided by the king. He rejected the garment. And then he came, not dressed, for the wedding. And he was called out and cast. See, this is this, the subtle we see here. It's Isaiah chapter 61. I have it marked. I'll read it real quick here. To you, just so you, I didn't write it down. Verse ten: I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. See, and in that in that parable, everyone else was dressed because he rejected the, the garment from the king. That's the subtle aspects that we see in here. And so Jesus talked very hard about that destiny of hell and the darkness. He pours um, clothing. Rest through the New Testament doctrine is our understanding of that. Talked about putting off and putting out. The clothes in what? Christ. Righteousness. So um, mm. this gets into what you're talking about to us. Amen. I mean, it's powerful because it's exactly what he is referring to, even the standpoint of even that true righteousness. I think too that this the word "preserved" here bespeaks of the 
perfect perfection of the planning of God because He knew that these false creatures were coming and He reserved the place for them in the beginning. He started His first epistle that way, if you remember. This was a long time ago. But to an inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is, verse 4. To an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Here it is. Reserved in heaven. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Reserved in heaven. Kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is this permanency. It is firmly fixed. It is that reservation that is never going to be voided. It is there. And so that is in contrast that we see here is that to those false teachers, it is a reservation to hell in contrast to heaven. So, after Peter now in verses 18 and 19 transitions us, he elaborates on these two metaphors in, verses, in verse 17, and now he provides examples of what do these false teachers do. When you see that, in the word for that way, you see, can you see the flow of that? He says, these are wells without water, he describes them, and then he says, for. For when they speak, in other words, he goes on to give you, says, now here is some examples. So, we're just going to go through a few of these things to describe what he's saying. So, the first one is, that we see, it says, When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, through the ones who have actually escaped or barely escaped from those who live in air. They're good with words. Jude, I listed Jude 16 there as a reference. I'll read that to you. Peter, uh, I mean, the Jude is he's saying that these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and here it is. Their mouth, they, excuse me, they mouth great swelling words. That's an interesting, <laughs> that's, my, that's the New King James. They, they, they mouth great uh, swelling words. Here it is. Flattering people to gain advantage. That's Jude 16. They are good with words. And when you go back to this, is that... Um, this swollenness that you see, this is this, uh, what, puffed up, right? It's like this size. So this is this arrogance that we see, he was describing it, is that there have these words of arrogance, but yet the words are what? Empty. Totally empty. So it's, they come across very powerful, very... Uh, boastful, very loud, but empty. I've over the you know the years I, you, you listen to people right, and you, you there's a, sometimes you can get tuned into a voice. Uh, you know, like a certain you like to hear someone speak. There's certain speakers that I just like to hear them speak. It's like their voice just it, it's like it resonates with me real well. Well, with that in itself is that the description of this is they got good voices. They're good. They're good with their words, and they'll say things to draw you in, whether that's through flattery. But yet, what you have to be discerning of is is what their motive was, which again is to their, like Jude says, to their advantage. Another description: What do they do? They have the ability to say what people want to hear. Second Peter, chapter two. Verses 1 to 3, they will, they will follow, in verse 2, they will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words, in, in verse 3. And one of my favorite passages on this topic is in 2 Timothy, so let's go there. This is a whole, this is 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's not just in verse 3. You really have to start in verse 2. Someone could read verses 2 through 5. That is a great passage, though. I love that passage, too. 
That, that is awesome. That one through four again. Uh, I'm stop at that point. What it describes in here, but again, let me give you a quick chapter one. He says, Paul says, Hey, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Chapter one, verse thirteen. Chapter two, he says, our big Awana verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Chapter 3, he says, perilous times are coming. Here we go. And so what he says in chapter 4, preach the word, in season and out of season. Why? Because they're going to they're gonna exit. They're going to go wherever they want to, whatever they want to hear. So they're going to... They, well, these false teachers will say the things in it's this image that you see here is that they will not endure sound doctrine. The time when people are going to be drawn by a different message. Whatever appeals to them. And that's what this itching ear imagery he has in here. You know, you just got to scratch it. It's like this is very easy on the ears. I like that. It appeals. So th- these are very, very it's a, it's strict warning there is because these people will say, and they're here. They speak with words of insignificance. Words of insignificance. They say a whole lot, but at the end of the day, you're not really sure. You didn't take any notes. <laughs> just a lot. They just talked for 50 minutes, and yeah, that's it was, but I didn't get nothing out of it. There's insignificant. And I think that you can relate to that even today, even from many pulpits, that that's what we're seeing and we're hearing. <clears throat> Going on. They will say words that appeal to the flesh. And this was, Marlene, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. They, they're going to they're gonna go to this place that it is appealing to the flesh. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14 having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. We see this repeated itself, that Peter repeats it again in verse 18, where he talks again about them being allured. And this this word enticing means to catch with bait. You know, these. uh, there's a couple of shows I like to watch. I'm not a fisherman, but I'm just like drawn into these, uh, like the... Wicked Tuna. You ever watch that show? Or the uh, Alaskan Fish Wars. Okay, All it is is just about fishermen, and they're like competing for the biggest fishes, and it's just all these different boats. But what I've drawn into it is just the fact of that it's all about catching these fish, the most fish, and who has the best knowledge to do it the best bait, the best lure, the best techniques, and everything else. That's exactly what this word means, is, is that how are they alluring in? And so we go on to those, it says in verse 18, it says that, carefully it says that, for those who barely escape from those who live in air. Green means go. What do you think Peter is referring to? word which Nick brought up well ago. I think a common denominator of the false teachers is that they have either no or limited foundation. They they are not grounded in the Word. And those of us who are not grounded in the Word will tend to catch on with them, take that bait, and be driven by the wind, driven off of our foundation. So they're targeting in this. They're targeting those who don't have a good foundation, the believers. I'm gonna I'm gonna categorize it because you you could take this a couple different ways, but let's talk about it. It could be new believers, absent of foundation, is that of, of of solid doctrine, is that we can get pulled in. They can get pulled in. So it could be referring to, and when you look at that, when it says that they barely escape those who are in error, in that case, the, the, those false teachers, those unbelievers, could then be drawn into that. And then I'm going to say it could also be a couple, a couple of other types of. It could be one that is actually 
that is drawing their way towards salvation. And I'm going to qualify what that means. It could mean that I came to church today because I'm seeking religion. I'm just, my life is messed up, and I, this looks like a place that I might get an answer to it. Okay? So in other words, I, and I I was careful in my words here, to say is, is that for those who may be drawing their way to salvation, okay? Their way meaning that they are seeking something. Our world is full of that, right? I mean, it's just where it's at. Is that there, whatever it might be, and it's like you are some of the examples that you are saying, Marlene. So wherever their life is at, and let's just say that they're not content with life today, they want to pull themselves out of where they're at in life. It could be those individuals that God is actually what drawing into the church, right? It could be when you and I that how did God draw you in? It was through the Word, and all of a sudden you were here. Either way, you're at a a very critical place that is vulnerable for attack by Satan. So when it says that they barely escape those who live in error, is that they're not going to he's not going to pray on his doorstep anymore because they've already called called it out. That house is marked, right? So they're going to go to the next house, and that is this is this those. Peter's referring to in here the situation is that they're coming. And I believe when you think of the church today is that where the church is at, and we've talked about this, if you think of the the dynamic right now of our church, right now today, go back two years ago, three years ago, do you see a difference? And where are people spiritually on that spectrum? People are coming in every week don't know some of these people. And so this is the part of this warnings that we see in here is that I keep going back and I'm not, making, not judging anything, but yet Satan is going to try to infiltrate and I believe he will here into every church and he's going to attack. This will be the targets. They promise a freedom that they don't have. They promise a freedom that they have not experienced. In other words, they themselves are slaves to Satan. I don't have the time, but you you recognize this chapter, right? Romans 6, right? It's a great chapter, right? It's this in there. There's there are some very very clear distinctions that that Paul gives when he says that either a slave to leading to death, or you're a slave leading to life and righteousness in Christ. That's the message of that chapter. And so these false teachers, they promise a freedom, freedom from sin, freedom, whatever it may look like, in, of solution in life, and that they themselves is what Peter says in there. Because what did he say here? He says, while they promise them freedom or promise them liberty, they themselves are what? Slaves of corruption. And again, what I, back in um, chapter 1, and that foundational passage, Peter says this, verse 4, by which, uh, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature And here it is, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, as believers, we've escaped that corruption. These false teachers are enslaved to it. So Peter elaborates further with the hopelessness of their condition and their enslavement. And so a key takeaway from this passage that is clear is is that these themselves, these false teachers are there and they will and are able to infiltrate the church so effectively. And how do they do that? You've seen some examples of that as we looked at within the church. And they're going to do it through relationships. They're going to do it even with a professed profession in, in Christ. Aren't they? So Peter identifies these false teachers as those who after they have escaped the defilements of the world, 
by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what this means in here is, is that you see they have gained they have gained the knowledge. We talk about the the preciousness of the word. You can buy it. Everyone's got one. You can buy one. Anyone can buy one. Anyone can read it. Anyone can speak to it. Many have knowledge of it, including false teachers. Titus 1, 10, and 11. I'm running out of time here. I'll just read that real quick. Titus chapter 1. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. So again, especially those of the circumcision, in this situation it was this within the church. So he goes on in verse 20, he says, They are again entangled by them and overcome the last state as uh, has become worse for them than the first. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, Peter, he quotes Jesus. These are Jesus' words, where it says that the last state became the worse for them in Second Peter. If you have a, a study Bible or a concordance there, you'll see the cross reference to, in, in chapter, verse 20 to Matthew chapter 12. For it was Jesus that, that made that, that comment. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. And with that comes really a great responsibility that those who have heard the word to heed it, respond to it, be serious about it, and not cool and dim. And so how he closes out with these two proverbs, he gives this point and gives the same point, that a dog returns to his vomit and a sow, a pig, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mirror. You know, we do have a dog. And our dog does not do good things in the yard sometimes. He eats stuff that he shouldn't be eating. Okay? Um, and you know what? It is not a pleasant picture. And take the time when you look at these passages because it's not Max that he's referring to. Good old sweet Max. These are not good images. This is not a compliment. In Scripture, we specifically see that these dogs, in fact, in Revelation 22, it refers to the dogs that are outside. It's those that those false teachers as described. In fact, and what this image that we have here is that they profess to be believers, but they're not. And so therefore, they will return to their state. This passage in Matthew, there's a, um, and I won't have the time to go through all of that, it talks about the demons that were there. They left, and after a while they came back, and they found the house empty and clean. But then what they did is they brought in seven more to come inside, and they overtook it even worse. And what that image is is the false teacher that is on the outside is cleaning up his act. It is that person that is being drawn to solve my problem in the church, but never really a believer. And so therefore, they return to their vomit. They return and wallowing in the, the, the mud. They always were a dog. They always were a pig. They're non-believers. And so that's what he, uh, Peter is referring to about these false teachers. It goes back to the reservation. It's reserved. It's reserved. It can't be changed. The greens are for take-homes. These were my. I have all of these things in the last to open up our discussion, but I'm really out of time. But I'd like to just walk you through them to kind of just as you're looking at it. Is there great danger in moral reformation? What, do you, what does that mean? Well, people can clean up their, their lifestyle so that they don't have to suffer the consequences, but really have to have their souls outward. It is outward. Think of the Pharisees. How did Jesus bless that, huh? These you whitewashed tombs. And so this moral reformation is what we're seeing how they're infiltrating the church. In fact, we see these that are coming to get their act together, to look good. And they're saying, well, this is, I guess, the way we, how I'm supposed to look. It is outside. And so it is the danger in moral reformation. That's not what we're talking about. Out with the old, in with the new. Second Corinthians 5.17. It's a new that's put on. And therefore, it is regeneration. What it's where it's all about, right? Not reformation. Reforming ourselves. You can't do it. You, turn, you become just like that dog and that pig. You return. And what happens 
when the church focuses on this and loses its hold and its responsibility to pillar and support of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, and what happens is, you finish it. You know what can happen. With increased knowledge, is there increased responsibility? Absolutely. When, because you have the Word, we have a responsibility with it. And the more you know the Word, you have a greater responsibility. Luke chapter 12, verses 47-48 uh, to that. And can you disassociate character from conduct? The answer is no. It'll always reveal. A dog's always a dog. It can, can look really clean, but a dog's still a dog. pig's still a pig. And how has the hearing of the Word impacted your relationship to the living God? This kind of takes us back to how we started with Psalm 119. Is that, can you be uh, excited about that Word? I confess, I struggle through that because of that flesh. And that flesh is always listening. It's always looking. And we're constantly embattled. Ephesians 6, right? We are constantly embattled. We are wrestling constantly with these influences here in the church, in our own lives too. Satan will always try to find the chink in your armor. He finds it. It's just different places in each of ours. Okay, so next week we are off and then we will come back in two weeks we'll pick back up with chapter 3 and so we've got a few weeks left and we should be able to wind this down I know before uh, about the middle of May in there so any final thoughts comments Mark can you close this in prayer thank you Father we uh, back there wrapped up in deadly serious Father may we hold us to intolerance in the name of tolerance, and how we can call us not to be tolerant of poisonous lies. I'm sure, Father, may we in formulate our responses to want to be offensive, false teachers, some passionate, loving desire to want to front lack of truth, bold and courageous, passionate about your word, that we are passionate, that we are called to Amen. Thank you.